to do is uh, bring to you some sound from the Chicago Historical Society so you get a sense of the way that Studs got these stories out of people. In the late 60s and early 70s, Turkle interviewed hundreds of people across the country for his book on the Depression of the 1930s. It was called Hard Times, an Oral History of the Great Depression, and it's available now from Andre Schifrin's current publishing house, The New Press. In 1973, he broadcast a number of those interviews on his show on WFMT in Chicago, and the audio that I'm about to play was taken from those broadcasts. We're grateful to the Studs Terkel Conversations with America website at studsterkel.org, which is a project of the Chicago Historical Society for making this audio available to the public. And we'll begin with the the voice of Mary Owsley. She was a migrant farm worker, the wife of a World War I veteran, and uh, this is Studs interviewing her. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now a mother and daughter Mary Owsley and Peggy Terry recall their experiences in Kentucky Oklahoma and points west Mrs. Owsley remembers her husband's feelings at the time we just drifted back and forth why so why so because he was so restless and disturbed from the war that's the only answer I know Everywhere he went, he saw uh, the 
tragedies of the war so vividly that he was discontented everywhere. And then we, we uh, went back to Oklahoma the last time in uh, January of 1929, and I had three children born there, beginning in 31. Why, it was, it was chaos, I'll tell you, it was terrible. There were so many people out of work and uh, no, no way to, to provide for the families or make a living. It was terrible. You remember situations involving other families around there, too? Oh, yes, I remember uh, several families there that lost their homes and everything they had. Their bank account and everything they had and had to leave there in covered wagons, for instance. Covered wagons? Covered wagons, absolutely. They went out of there in covered wagons in the 30s. Where'd they That's go? True. Heaven knows. I don't know. California, I guess. People that had come in there, you see, the oil boom come in 1929. And people come from every direction in there. And they was living in everything from puff tents to houses built out of, of cardboard boxes and old pieces of, of uh, metal that they'd pick up. Anything they could find to put something together to put a, a wall around them to protect them from the public. Just by everybody you know was hit? Why, sure. The majority of the people was hit and hit hard, but uh, they were mentally disturbed, you're bound to know, because they didn't know when the end of all this was coming, and people were very depressed. There was a lot of suicides that I know of from nothing else, but just they couldn't see uh, any hope for a better tomorrow, and they went broke. They were flat broke, and they didn't have a thing in the world. And they committed suicide on the strength of it, nothing else. Uh, even the people that, that were quite well-to-do, many of them had lost everything they had, and them that didn't were scared to death to turn loose of a dime. I'll say a big majority of them was ashamed and and it bothered them because they could eat and there were so many people that couldn't eat. Do you remember people taking part in demonstrations of any sort? Is My husband went to Washington. Your Back husband did? Why, indeed he did. We marched with that group that went to Washington to say, what year was that? The thing? bonus marchers? Oh, yes, sir. Oh, your husband was a bonus marcher. Oh, yes, sir. He was a hellraiser. You know he was in World War One. He was a machine gunner in World War One. And he felt like that uh, the men that fought in the war should have their bonus, especially at a time like it was then, and then without employment and with families to support. Mama, don't you remember when Daddy used to say, the goddamn Germans gassed me and I come home and my own goddamn government gassed me? Yes, he said that oh. too. He was a machine gunner, and the goddamn Germans gassed him in, in Germany, and he come home and he's own government stooges gassed him and run him off the country up there with water holes, half drowned him. He was very bitter because he, 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 was, he was an intelligent man and he, he couldn't see 
why as wealthy a country as this is that there was any sense in so many people practically starving to death and living in such dire poverty when so much of it was wheat and everything else being poured in the ocean and many, many things that was happening that was taking food out of people's mouths and homes. He was very bitter because he never could see. You know, there's many excuses, but he looked for a reason and he found none. We're listening to uh, sound from the interviews that Studs Terkel conducted in the late 1960s and very early 1970s for his book on the Depression, Hard Times, courtesy of the Chicago Historical Society. And you're tuned in to Beyond the Pale on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Esther Kaplan. Up next, we're going to be listening to an interview that Studs Terkel conducted with the African-American social scientist Horace Caton. The late Horace Caton, who was a sociologist who lived in Chicago, came to the city as a young man in the 30s, and he recalls things that he saw on the streets. I was new in Chicago. I'd just come from Seattle, Washington. I was very naive about the black belt, about masses of Negro people, and I spent much of my time just walking around discovering this fantastic world of all black people. And uh, I was eating uh, lunch in a restaurant facing the street, um, and it was on 47th Street between, um, oh, let me say, near Michigan and Wabash, if, if that's right. And I was eating at lunch, and I saw, saw a, a group of Negroes marching by two together and silent. They were just marching. Now, if you've been in the back, in the black belt, you know, Negroes are loud and, and boisterous. But these people had a destination, had a, a purpose. They were going someplace. Uh, you felt the tension. These people were on a mission. And uh, I still had my dessert to eat, but um, I was too curious, and I paid my bill. And got in line and, and in the back and just marched. And I found myself next to a chap. Uh, I was better dressed than them, but um, they showed no animosity to me. And so finally I said, where are we going? And he said, we're going to put some people back in the building. Been evicted. And I didn't ask any more. I just went on. Well, of course, later... When we arrived at the destination, I saw that it uh, was the unemployed, I don't know if it was the unemployed council, whatever that group, I think it's unemployment council. And uh, they systematically, the bailiffs would put the family out and they'd just march and put them back. 
you watched the whole show? Mm. Well, when they got there, it was a building, a ramshackle building. Seems like it was over by Dearborn. And uh, there they were shanties, really. Um, and uh, a big crowd of black, solid blacks, just uh, had formed. And they were, pre they were talking great. What Robert E. Park, the sociologist who I later studied under, called an indignation meeting. These have these indignation meetings down south. But unlike the indignation buildings of the south, where the Negroes just let off steam because they couldn't contain themselves when the lynching or some injustice had been done, they'd meet and lock the doors and have an indignation meeting and curse out white people. But here in Chicago, in 1931 is something different. Here was action. Well, they moved the scant uh, furniture, just rags of covers and and broken down bedstead and chiffonier back in, and then they were having a little meeting. Well, of course, the, they sent a, a bailiff, I guess, from the court, uh, to do that, and they just disappeared. And they were having a very spirited meeting, what it was, in my eyes, with, with people who had been pushed to the end, been put out. The weather was below zero at the time, and these people with all their baggage just in there, and they just moved them back. Well, um, we stood, and there was a meeting, and then we started to hear sirens, police cars, and everyone grew tense. Everybody in the crowd just moved up. And then a frail black woman, an old black woman, waved her head and said, stand tight, stand tight, don't move. Like, and they started to sing like a tree that wanders something over the river. We shall overcome. And then they just stood tight. And then they sang another wonderful song. Uh, and it was communist words. But I don't think, uh, this, oh, this didn't characterize, this was a folk meeting of uh, 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 a response to uh, inhuman conditions. And somebody sang, uh, give me that old time religion, give me that old time religion, give me that old time religion, it's good enough for me, it's good enough for Brother Stalin, it's good enough for Brother Stalin, it's good enough for Brother Stalin. <laughs> and it's good enough for me, and it's good enough for Father Lennon. It's good enough for Father Lennon. It's good enough for Father Lennon, and it's good enough for me. And while they're singing, I love that 
moment where Studs Terkel just starts cracking up as uh, Horace Caton sings that song. We're listening to interviews that Studs Terkel conducted for his book, Hard Times, An Oral History of the Great Depression. These interviews were all conducted in 1971. They were aired on his show on WFMT in Chicago and um, have been made publicly available by the Chicago Historical Society. Up next, uh, a short excerpt from his interview with Virginia Durr. The voices of hard times with Virginia Durr, who lives in Montgomery, Alabama. She was a young woman at the time in the Deep South, and she reflects concerning the whole idea of the Depression and what it did to humans. Some say, gee, I wish, I wish I'd lived in that time. It was a romantic time. Well, it really certainly was not a romantic time. It was a time of the most terrible suffering. And it was a time when the contradiction was so obvious that it really didn't take a very bright person to see that something was terribly wrong with it because now in my own case I thought you know it was so insane the idea of children shaking into pieces with rickets and the milk being poured in the gutter that was just so stupid and so ridiculous and uh, so then it was not very long after that and this went on this wasn't just a few people these were thousands of people you see in uh, Jefferson County, about four-fifths, uh, three-fifths of the people were on relief. And there was no government relief, so this meant that they had this uh, just these two dollars and a half a week that the Red Cross provided them, and what they could beg, borrow, or steal. But the thing that also struck me as being so terrible was that just the way my mother and father had this terrible feeling of shame and guilt and it was their failure they lost all their property. These people had the same feeling of shame and guilt. They lost their jobs. They didn't blame the Republic Steel Company or the United States Steel. They didn't blame the capitalist system. They just blamed themselves. And they thought, well, you know, they would say in the most apologetic way, well, you know, if we hadn't bought that radio, if we hadn't bought that old second-hand car, if we'd saved their money. And, you know, they really blamed themselves. And uh, it was this terrible feeling they had of shame that they were on relief. And one of the things, too, that just struck me with such horror was that the preachers, the fundamentalist preachers, would tell them that they were suffering because they'd sinned. And uh, they believed that, too. They, 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 they really felt that they had sinned and God was punishing them. And that the uh, children would dying with starvation and, you know, shaking with the rickets because of their own sins. Well, to me, this was just perfectly horrible. I mean, the whole thing was just, and yet I didn't know the reason. The, the Depression affected people in two different ways. Uh, one was, and I think this was the overwhelming majority, and that was that having faced the terror of a lack of a job, and the shame of having lived on relief, and the uh, panic of not knowing whether you were going to be able to get work or not, I think the great majority of the people reacted by, you know, thinking that money was the most important thing in the world, and that the most important thing to do was to get 
get yours and get it for your children and be sure that you, you had it and your children had it and nothing else mattered but you know getting some money and some property and not having this terror ever come on you again of not being able to feed your family on the other hand i think there were a small number of people which i think i'm one who felt like the whole system was lousy and that you had to change the system and uh, i think that the kids come along and they think you got to change the system too but they don't seem to know what kind of system to put in its place. Well, now, I'm not so sure that I know. I thought I, I used to think I knew. I do think you've got to have a system of um, government that responds to the needs of the people. That was another excerpt from Studs Terkel's interviews with survivors of the Great Depression conducted, um, in this case, in 1971 for his book, Hard Times. Studs Terkel died at age 96 on October 31st, and we certainly mourn his passing.